out of Austin, Texas. You're listening to the Unsanctioned Citizen Podcast. Here's your host, Sheila Dean. Hi. It's day six, the last hundred days of call-in. Thank you for joining us. It's like we have six days till hundred days. Complete commitment here. Okay, so we are reading today chapter 13, The British Torture by Attrition, uh, and the continued reading of The Trial of Julian Assange, so I'll just get right to it. British Torture by Attrition, Quo Vadis Britannia? On the 11th of April of 2019, Alan Duncan British Minister of State for Europe and the Americas responsible for overseeing Assange's expulsion and arrest noted in his diary it had taken many months of patient diplomatic negotiation and in the end sorry in the end it went off without a hitch I do millions of interviews trying to keep the smirk off my face indeed that day British politicians outdid each other In celebrating Assange's arrest, and Prime Minister Theresa May expressed her satisfaction in the House of Commons, this goes to show that in the UK, no one is above the law, except no one except the British authorities themselves, of course. The blatant failure of all three branches of government to uphold the rule of law when dealing with the case of Julian Assange seriously calls into question the stability and reliability of Britain's democratic institutions. But the persecution of Assange is not an isolated incident. For at least 20 years now, consecutive British governments have followed an increasingly alarming path of exceptionalism, arbitrariness, and impunity that has severely eroded the country's international credibility. Perhaps the most obvious example is Britain's eager involvement in the 2003 War of Aggression against Iraq which gravely violated the most fundamental principles of international law and order, triggering two decades of war, terrorism, and corruption that killed, displaced, and traumatized millions of innocent people. Thousands of allegations of murder, torture, and rape involving British soldiers in Iraq have been deemed to be credible by the Chief Prosecutor Fatou uh, Bensouda of the International Criminal Court. However, Only one British soldier has ever been convicted of a war crime by the United Kingdom, and that was because he made a voluntary confession. All other cases ended up being dropped or otherwise discontinued by the British judiciary, and neither Prime Minister Blair nor any other political leader has ever been held to account for their role in recklessly destroying Iraq and destabilizing the entire region. The same impunity surrounds British involvement in the CIA's unlawful policy of torture and extraordinary rendition as part of the War on Terror. In the summer of 2018, an investigation by the Intelligence and Security Committee of the British Parliament formally concluded that British authorities had substantially contributed to the CIA's practice of torture and rendition and demanded a full judicial inquiry. Although the Convention Against Torture requires that any perpetration or participation in torture must be prosecuted and punished, and although the treaty does not allow for any political discretion in this regard, the British government has prevented the judicial inquiry requested by Parliament and continues to impose impunity 
for the British officials involved in the CIA program. By blocking the prosecution of war crimes, the political leadership of the United Kingdom, just like the U.S. President, not only violate the Convention Against Torture and the Geneva Conventions, but also incur international criminal responsibility in line with the customary principles of command and superior responsibilities that have been recognized and confirmed by all international criminal courts and tribunals since the Nuremberg trials after World War II. To make matters worse, the British government has recently considered, taken considerable pains to codify the impunity of its officials in domestic law. Thus, in 2020, Prime Minister Boris Johnson's cabinet introduced two bills into Parliament designed to make it extremely difficult, if not impossible, to punish British soldiers, agents, and authority representatives for crimes such as torture, murder, and hostage-taking, both abroad and in the UK, namely the Overseas Operations Bill and the Covert Human Intelligence Sources Criminal Conduct Bill. To complete the picture, a commission was appointed in the same year to review the British Human Rights Act for necessary reforms, which has put numerous human rights organizations on alert. Despite an uproar of international protest, including by my own office, the British government has been, been bent on pushing the Overseas Operations Bill through Parliament without any substantial concessions, thus ensuring de facto impunity even for the most atrocious international crimes. It was only during the very last session in the House of Lords that amendments were made after the former Defense Secretary and NATO Secretary General George Robertson had opposed the bill stressing the enormous reputational damage that would ensue for the United Kingdom. The government finally accepted torture, meaning E-X-C-E-P-T-E-D, like an exception, accepted torture, war crimes, and crimes against humanity from its scope of application. As a professor of international law at a British university, I observe this trend with growing concern. As the UN Special Rapporteur on Torture, I am called to formally intervene with the British government ever more frequently on increasingly serious issues related to my mandate a far cry from the traditional image of Britain as the reasonable and reliable country of the Magna Carta. Unfortunately, the incapacity of the British authorities at all levels to ensure humane treatment and due process to Julian Assange is symptomatic of a broader trend of institutional erosion and social disintegration. It is also consistent with the government's almost complete indifference to any admonition by international organizations and observers. One can only hope that the British people will wake up to the enormous risks of this tendency and use their democratic powers to change course before damage becomes irreversible. Assange knew, of course, that Ecuador had not handed him over to a neutral and impartial judiciary, but to a powerful government that had spent ten years and millions of pounds in surveilling, persecuting, and demonizing him. He knew that this government perceived him as an enemy of the state and could not wait to make a chilling example of him for the entire world to see. Assange's, conscientious, sorry, Assange's consciousness of this reality had triggered a dangerous downward spiral typical of victims of psychological torture. <clears throat> 
He had entered a vicious circle of permanent anxiety, stress and sleeplessness and helplessness, confusion and depression, which urgently needed to be stabilized through medication and even more importantly, stress relief. As the doctors accompanying my visit on 9 May of 2019 had correctly predicted, Assange's state of health deteriorated rapidly to the point where, just three weeks later, on 30 May 2019, he was no longer capable of participating in a court hearing, even by video link. <clears throat> Arbitrary Isolation and Surveillance After his transfer to Belmarsh's healthcare unit, Assange spent a short time in a group cell with three other inmates, but was soon moved to a single cell where he was almost completely isolated. According to consistent reports, he was only allowed to leave his cell once a day to spend 45 minutes outdoors in the courtyard alone. Any exchange with other inmates was systematically prevented. Whenever Assange was escorted through the corridors by the guards, all other inmates were locked away first. Inside his cell, he was monitored around the clock. All these measures were ostensibly taken for his own safety to protect him from himself and from his fellow inmates. Far from showing any aggression, however, it was precisely those fellow inmates who petitioned the prison director in solidarity with Assange, demanding that he be transferred back to the general prison population because of the cruelty of long-term solitary confinement. They were right. The United Nations Standard Minimum Rules for the Treatment of Prisoners, also known as the Nelson Mandela Rules, make clear that solitary confinement, that is, can define... The confinement of prisoners for 22 hours or more a day, without meaningful human contact, is permissible only in exceptional circumstances and for short periods of time. Prolonged solitary confinement, lasting more than 15 consecutive days, is expressly prohibited as a form of torture or other cruel, inhuman, or degrading treatment or punishment. <clears throat> Constant surveillance, too seriously interferes with the privacy rights and can only be justified in exceptional circumstances and for a short time. For example, in order to prevent an imminent risk of suicide, unfortunately this suicide watch regime is not always used in good faith but increasingly to covertly erode a prisoner's resistance. Suicide prevention was also the reason given for tormenting Chelsea Manning with constant surveillance for nine months a practice that was later condemned as arbitrary and abusive not only by my predecessor, Juan Mendez, presiding over the trial of Chelsea Manning. <clears throat> as we have seen, however, the British authorities always had an explanation ready. When Assange was in poor health, his isolation and surveillance had to be maintained to protect him. But then when his health stabilized, this was taken as evidence that Assange's isolation had needed to be continued. What was deliberately ignored, of course, was that Assange had not committed any offense. <clears throat> I'm so sorry. I think I need to do something about this. I'm going gonna, gonna to hit um, a quick two-minute break so that I can take care of my throat.
Okay, we're back. Sorry about that. It's cedar pollen season, and it is really kind of making it kind of hard. <clears throat> All right. So where were we? Unfortunately, the incapacity of the British authorities at all levels to ensure the humane treatment and due process of Julian Assange is symptomatic of a broader trend of institutional erosion and social disintegration, which I think we have already covered. <clears throat> Constant surveillance. As we have seen, however, the British authorities always had an explanation ready. When Assange was in poor health, his isolation and surveillance had to be maintained to protect him. <clears throat> but then when his health stabilized, this was taken as evidence that Assange's isolation had a positive effect on his health and needed to be continued. What was deliberately ignored, of course, was that Assange had not committed any offense that could have justified his detention in a high-security prison, and that his health crisis had been caused by the very isolation, surveillance, and arbitrariness now supposedly had to be used to protect him. This resulted in an artificial vicious circle which strongly suggests that the authorities were much less interested in protecting Assange's health than ensuring he would remain silenced through isolation. Significantly, his solitary confinement was not lifted even after 25th September 2019 when Assange had served half of the 50-week sentence imposed for his bail violation, and the remainder of his sentence had to be waived for good conduct. As a matter of law, Assange was now no longer serving a sentence, but should have been a free man allowed to pursue his professional and family life without restriction, so long as he remained available for the U.S. extradition trial. Because of Assange's previous escape to the Ecuadorian embassy, however, the judge ruled that as a precaution, he could not be released but had to remain in custody for the entire duration of the extradition proceedings. Quite obviously, however, for purely preventative custody, the extremely restrictive conditions at Belmarsh were neither necessary nor proportionate. Two mandatory basic requirements for any lawful interference with fundamental rights. Instead, Assange should have been moved to a less securitized institution or to guarded house arrest with unrestricted access to his professional activities, to his family, his lawyers, and the outside world more generally. But that, of course, would have looked too much like a victory for Assange and would have undermined the real purpose of his continued solitary confinement to silence him and to intimidate the free press. Undermining Defendants' Rights In addition to silencing, intimidating, and breaking Assange, his isolation at Belmarsh had a second, probably equally intentional effect. Belmarsh being a high-security prison, security measures are particularly strict. This is not only reflected in the extremely elaborate entrance procedures for outside visitors, which we had experienced ourselves, but it also complicates and slows down <clears throat> everything going on inside the prison, such as social contacts, telephone calls, mail distribution, library visits, sports and exercise, work, hygiene, and doctor's visits. Everything is minutely regulated and carried out under strict supervision. The personal items permitted to inmates inside the cell are limited, as are the number of visitors they can receive. Even external visits that have been notified and authorized in advance 
are routinely affected by delays. <clears throat> Assange's lawyers have complained that they are not allowed to visit him with sufficient frequency, and that when such visits are granted, Assange or the visiting lawyer are either brought to the meeting room late or picked up too early, purportedly due to a shortage of available prison staff, which routinely reduces the meeting time to half of the reserved time slot. For example, after the Swedish investigation had been reopened on 13 May of 2019, Assange's Swedish lawyer, Per Samuelsson, traveled to London for a two-hour meeting with his client to discuss the case documents which were available in Swedish only. But Assange was brought to the meeting with Samuelson one hour and 45 minutes late, shortening the meeting time to 15 minutes. Moreover, Samuelson was not allowed to hand over any documents to Assange and ultimately was required to leave without having been able to fulfill his function as defense counsel. According to the prison administration, this was just a regrettable misunderstanding. A misunderstanding, however, that kept recurring with routine predictability. Others who complained about the obstructive delays were Assange's London legal team, led by Gareth Pierce and Jennifer Robinson, as well as Dr. Sandra Crosby and Assange's private visitors. During my own official visit in May of 2019, I had the same experience. All of these instances, too, were presumably just regrettable misunderstandings. As external visitors are not allowed to hand over anything to Assange, medical and legal documents must be sent through ordinary mail, which commonly results in delivery delays of up to two months, and reportedly in the unauthorized opening of confidential attorneys' correspondence. No doubt, all such incidents, too, are just regrettable misunderstandings. Immediately after his arrest in April 2019, Assange had requested the allocation of a laptop so that he could read the court files in electronic form and draft notes and statements for his own defense. Again, owing to further regrettable misunderstandings, the request was not granted until 10 months later after the extradition hearing had already begun in February 2020. Even when Assange was finally given the laptop, the keyboard had been blocked with glue to prevent him from typing. Regrettable? Certainly a misunderstanding? Certainly not. Much as this, the authorities tried to disguise their obstruction behind a smokescreen of bureaucratic, logistical, and security imperatives, they could not possibly have asked, acted in good faith. They knew, of course, that Assange was not their average convict or a remand prisoner at the most one pending trial or appeal process to prepare. In his case, several highly complex proceedings were simultaneously underway in different states. On the one hand, he had to prepare for the U.S. extradition proceedings, in which he faced the most powerful state in the world with its army of lawyers and its unlimited financial, political, and military resources and leverage. On the other hand, there was also the British bail violation, the reopened Swedish investigation, the Spanish case against UC Global for illegal surveillance at the embassy, and a possible case against the Ecuadorian authorities who had illegally retained Assange's belongings after his expulsion and handed them over directly to the U.S. government. Even under ideal circumstances, five proceedings in three different languages involving five distinct jurisdictions would have been an arduous, almost unmanageable challenge under the conditions of isolation 
imposed on him at Belmarsh, however, Assange clearly had no chance to protect his legitimate interest in any of these proceedings, to study the extensive case files, or to adequately prepare his defense. This was particularly alarming with the regard to his potential extradition to the United States, which would have almost certainly resulted in lifelong solitary confinement under cruel, inhumane, and degrading conditions. Both during my personal meetings with responsible authorities and in my formal letters to the British government, I had repeatedly stressed that Assange's most fundamental due process rights were being violated and demanded immediate action to no avail. Despite the gravity and continuity of these procedural violations, no one wanted to take responsibility. As usual, of course, the British authorities had no bad intentions whatsoever, but insurmountable constitutional or bureaucratic obstacles prevented them from taking the slightest action on behalf of Assange. Whenever his lawyers complained, the prison administration felt unable to interfere with judicial proceedings, and the judge felt unable to interfere with prison conditions, because, as well known, the United Kingdom is a rule-of-law democracy in which the separation of powers prevails, and the judiciary and executive must always be careful to not tread on each other's areas of responsibility, except, of course, when it serves the interests of those in power. No one seems to have wasted a thought on the fact that any legal proceeding affected by systematic due process violations of such gravity must be regarded as irreparably arbitrary and therefore invalid. Assange and Pinochet, an instructive comparison. In a democracy governed by the rule of law, everyone is equal before the law. In essence, this means that comparable cases must be treated equally. Like Julian Assange today, the Chilean ex-dictator, Augusto Pinochet, was also held in British extradition custody from 16 October 1998 to March 2 of 2000. Spain, Switzerland, France, and Belgium wanted to prosecute him for torture and crimes against humanity. Like Assange today, Pinochet that then described himself as Britain's only political prisoner. Unlike Assange, however, Pinochet was not accused of having obtained and published evidence for torture, murder, and corruption, but of actually having committed, ordered, and consented to such crimes. Moreover, unlike Assange, he was not considered a threat to the interests of the British government, but a friend and an ally from the era of the Cold War, and crucially, the Falcons' War. Thus, when a British court dared to apply the law and lift Pinochet's diplomatic immunity, that decision was immediately overturned. The reason given was possible bias on the part of one of the judges. Apparently, the judge in question had at some point volunteered for a local fundraiser of the human rights organization Amnesty International, which was a joint plaintiff in the, in the case. Fast forward to the case of Julian Assange. Here, Judge Arbuthnot whose husband had been repeatedly exposed by WikiLeaks, was not only allowed to decide on Assange's arrest warrant in 2018, but, despite a well-documented application for recusal, also to preside over his extradition proceedings until Judge Berister, I think it's Berister, yeah, Berister, yeah, took over in the summer of 2019. None of her decisions were overturned. Pinochet, accused of being directly responsible for tens of thousands of serious human rights violations, 
was not insulted, humiliated, or ridiculed by British judges in public court hearings, nor was he held in solitary confinement at a high-security prison. When Pinochet was taken into custody, Prime Minister Blair did not express his satisfaction in Parliament. In the UK, no one is above the law, and there was no open letter from 70 members of Parliament fervently demanding that the government extradite the ex-dictator to the requesting countries. Instead, Pinochet spent his extradition detention in a luxurious house arrest in a villa outside London, where he was allowed to receive unlimited visitors from a private Chilean priest at Christmas to former Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher. The inconvenient truth-teller, Julian Assange, however, who is accused of journalism rather than torture and murder, is not being granted house arrest. He is being silenced in solitary confinement. Like Assange's Pinochet's state of health was a decisive issue. Although the general himself categorically dismissed the idea of a release on humanitarian grounds, Home Secretary Jack Straw personally intervened. Straw ordered a medical examination of Pinochet, which concluded that the former military putschist and dictator was suffering from amnesia and poor concentration. When several governments requesting his extradition demanded an independent second opinion, the British government refused. Instead, Secretary Straw himself decided that Pinochet was not fit to stand trial and ordered his immediate release and repatriation. Contrary to the United States and the extradition trial of Assange, these states requesting Pinochet's extradition were not given opportunity to appeal. In the case of Assange, several independent medical reports, as well as my official findings as the UN Special Rapporteur on Torture, were ignored. And even when he was barely able to state his own name in court, the trial continued without regard for his deteriorating health and unfitness to stand trial. Just as with Pinochet, Assange's extradition was, at least initially, refused on medical grounds. But while Pinochet was immediately released and repatriated, and the states requesting his extradition were deprived of all legal remedies, Assange was immediately returned to solitary confinement, his release on bail was refused, and the United States were invited to appeal to the High Court, thus ensuring the perpetuation of Assange's ordeal and silencing for the remainder of an extradition proceeding that could easily be spun for several years. Excuse me. The comparison of these two cases demonstrates the double standard applied by the British authorities and how in the United Kingdom not everyone is equal before the law after all. In Pinochet's case, the aim was to provide a former dictator and loyal ally with impunity for alleged crimes against humanity. In Assange's case, the aim to silence an inconvenient dissident whose organization WikiLeaks challenges precisely this type of impunity. Both approaches are motivated purely by power politics and are incompatible with justice and the rule of law. The torture proves effective. Quote, I was de deeply shaken while witnessing yesterday's events in Westminster Magistrates Court. Every decision was railroaded through over the scarcely heard arguments and objections of Assange's legal team by a magistrate who barely pretended to be listening. End quote. Those are the words of Craig Murray, a former British ambassador and a personal friend of Assange's, describing his impressions after witnessing a case management hearing on 21 October of 2019. 
This type of hearing exists to give all parties the opportunity to clarify procedural issues in advance of the substantive extradition hearing. It is the first time Assange participates in such a hearing in person after he has previously been medically unfit to attend or has participated only via video link. Murray is shocked at the sight of his friend being led into the courtroom. Assange is limping. He has lost at least 15 kilos in weight. His hair has become thin. He looks prematurely aged. Even more frightening is the deterioration of his mental state. Assange struggles visibly to follow the hearing, to speak, and even to recall his own name and date of birth. The hearing is presided over by Vanessa Berezer, a district judge subordinate to such senior judge Ardbutnot, who has been tasked with Assange's extradition trial, presumably in order to preempt further recusal applications against Arbuthnot. Despite strong objections on the part of Assange's lawyers, who demand more participation time, Judge Baritzer confirms that the extradition hearing will begin on 24 February of 2020, as requested by Prosecutor Lewis on behalf of the United States. The venue will then not be Westminster Magistrates Court, but Woolwich Crown Court, a highly securitized courtroom in the immediate vicinity of Belmarsh Prison, which normally hosts trials against suspected terrorists. At the end of the hearing, the judge finally turns to Assange and orders him to stands, <clears throat> stand and ask him whether he has understood the proceedings. He replies in the negative, says that he cannot think, and appears disoriented. Then Murray recounts, Assange seems to find an inner reserve of strength and says, I do not understand how this process is equitable. A superpower had 10 years to prepare for this case, and I cannot even access my writings. It is very difficult where I am to do anything. These people have unlimited resources. And after that, the effort seems to become too much. His voice drops, and he becomes increasingly confused and incoherent. Judge Berezer is unmoved by Assange's evidently precarious state of health as she is by his express objections regarding the fairness of the proceedings. If he could not understand what was had happened during the hearing, his lawyers can explain it to him, she says, dismisses the parties, and closes the hearing. Assange's life is in danger. In the autumn of 2019, signs that Assange's health and deterioration had further become more pronounced. It was not easy to obtain an objective assessment, but the alarming information I received from several reliable sources confirmed that the prediction that we had made after my visit in the event that no measures were taken to alleviate the pressure on Assange. As Murray had vividly described, the damaging effects of such relentless exposure to isolation, surveillance, and arbitrariness were now becoming plainly visible to the outside world, even to medical laypersons. While Assange had still seemed relatively resilient during my visit in May of 2019, I now began to seriously fear for his life. With increasing duration, the destabilization of the personality caused by psychological torture tends to accelerate in a regressive downward spiral towards total psychological and physical collapse. Either the victim abandons all physical and mental resistance and sinks into total confusion, neglect, and apathy, 
or the process culminates in an often life-threatening crisis event such as a cardiovascular breakdown, a stroke, or a suicide attempt. In autumn of 2019, the unmistakable evidence was that Julian Assange was fast approaching a point where his life was in acute danger. So it was clear to me that I needed to intervene and I needed to do it now. On 29 October 2019, I sent an urgent appeal to the British government, listing perceived due process violations, denouncing Assange's reported conditions of detention, and calling for his immediate release, or at least his transfer to an environment that would enable the protection of his health and human rights. The official later was accompanied by a press statement which I sent to the British ambassador in Geneva 48 hours in advance of its release on 1 November 2019, as required by our standard procedures. The purpose of this advance warning is to give the concerned government time to point out errors and request amendments and to prepare their own public response to any press requests they may receive. However, the British ambassador did not reach out to my office. Instead, he went to see the High Commissioner for Human Rights, Michel Bachelet. I was told that during their meeting, the ambassador expressed concern about the wording of my planned press release. In particular, he took issue with the title, UN expert on torture sounds alarm against, again, that a Julian Assange's life may be at risk and with my accusation of blatant and sustained arbitrariness shown by both the judiciary, judiciary and the government in this case. In the view of the ambassador, these statements lack the necessary impartiality. The ambassador also advised that Mr. Assange was indeed receiving proper medical care and that he had access to his lawyers. In addition, I was informed that the issue of the code of conduct was also raised, a thinly veiled warning making it clear that Britain's patience with me would not be endless. The ambassador knew, of course, that he would not achieve anything by complaining to the High Commissioner. Although her office provides my secretariat, she is not my superior and has no authority to direct my work. What counted was the gesture, not to talking to me in my presence, but about me in my absence. And, as I would soon learn, not only with the High Commissioner, but also with ambassadors of other UN member states. In this way, the question of British compliance with the prohibition of torture and ill-treatment suddenly morphed into a question of my personal compliance with the Code of Conduct for Special Procedures and Mandate Holders. The British strategy was blatant, but not harmless. The same formula had already been used very effectively against countless other inconvenient messengers worldwide, including, of course, Assange himself. It was not by accident that the world no longer discussed the war crimes revealed by WikiLeaks, but only the person of Assange. But the ambassador's ominous invocation of the code of conduct would not intimidate me. Like any other independent expert or arbiter, I conduct my investigations observing the strictest standards of objectivity and partiality. Once I have come to the conclusion that an act of torture has been committed, however, my task is not to be impartial between torturers and victims. Instead, I must cry foul and insist on justice, repatriation, and the rule of law. If the state in question cooperates, all of this can be done discreetly and diplomatically. 
But if a government refuses to engage in constructive dialogue and repeatedly violates its obligations in a serious way, then there is a point when I must make myself unpopular and mobilize the public. Anything else would make me a traitor to my mandate, mandate <clears throat> which is precisely why I'm writing this book. The world's doctors take action. My press release of 1 November 2019 did not miss its mark, especially after the collapse of the Swedish rape narrative. The way was now clear to allow the demonized monster to become a human being again, an individual whose fate should be of concern to any responsible citizen. It was as if a curse had been lifted. Media interest increased steadily, and more and more people in different circles began to see through the contradictions of the official narrative. An important breakthrough came as early as 22 November 2019, a mere three days after the end of the Swedish investigation, when a group of 60 medical doctors, doctors for Assange, wrote an open letter to the British Home Office appealing to have Assange transferred from Belmarsh Prison to a university hospital where he could receive the care he needed. British Home Secretary Priti Patel did not respond directly, but three days later her spokesperson made the following statement to the press. The allegations Mr. Assange was subjected to torture are unfounded and wholly false. The UK is committed to upholding the rule of law and ensuring that no one is ever above it. But public perceptions of British credibility had changed, and the doctors could no longer be appeased with such platitudes. They followed up with a second letter on 4 December 2019, which likewise remained unanswered. The group, which had grown to 117 medical doctors from 18 countries, now decided to publish a public appeal in The Lancet, one of the world's most prestigious medical journals, in February of 2020. <coughs> Should Assange die in a UK prison, as the UN Special Rapporteur on Torture has warned, he will effectively have been tortured to death. Much of that torture will have taken place in a prison medical ward on doctor's watch. The medical profession cannot afford to stand silently by on the wrong side of torture and on the wrong side of history while such a travesty unfolds. And this is the Lancet. Holy mackerel. In parallel, in an open correspondence with the Australian government between December and March of 2020, the doctors exposed the formalistic prevarications of the Australian authorities with hard facts and unequivocally demanded that Australia finally use its considerable political clout to protect its citizen. The doctors also raised the particular danger to prison inmates posed by the corona pandemic, which was just beginning to break out on a global scale. But as soon as it became clear that the doctors would not be satisfied with the usual half-hearted bromides coming from Canberra, the Australian government ceased to respond. Nevertheless, the doctors had already achieved a great deal. They had rocked the boat in the medical community and ensured that the case of Julian Assange was perceived not just as a question of individual fate, but as a failure of systemic proportions in which the principles of medical ethics were disregarded with the same contempt as the rule of law. A second appeal in the Lancet on the occasion of International Torture Victims Day on 26th of June of 2020 displayed over 250 signatures from of medical professionals from 35 countries it was clear that a critical mass had now been reached the tide had turned and the momentum however small had started picking up Assange's supporters would no longer be muzzled and were increasingly able to influence perceptions and opinions in politics 
the media, and through this, the general public. Okay, and tomorrow we will cover Anglo-American show trial. I think that's the end of our book, the 14th chapter. So let's see who we have with us. We have Gregor and Nate. So Gregor or Nate, either one of you are invited to call in to, to add comment. You know, this was um, <clears throat> Julian Assange being system systematically held in solitary confinement. It's broadly condemned as a practice. Uh, this is a this is a practice of pretrial confinement that's actually going on here in the United States, which is completely shameful. We have constitutional redress um, with the Sixth Amendment, and we have appropriations for speedy trials, which we have somehow foregone. And this exchange, where no lawyers are appointed for pretrial, is unacceptable. Turning people out uh, with no resources, meaning like no recourse, like they don't they're not held for violent crimes, that's not the same thing. When you're arrested, they have this Miranda rights epithet that they read to you when you're arrested. And among the things that they tell you is that if you cannot afford a lawyer, one will be appointed to you. But it doesn't, does it really take two years, ten years to appoint a lawyer? Any lawyer? <laughs> uh, a public, public uh, defender to, to represent your case? So, I mean, it, these are rhetorical questions. Let me see here. I'm going to go to the notes. I'm so glad I didn't miss the hundredth day. Woo! Proceed. That is, that's Nate. Would you mind sending up a little emoji if you can hear me and are responsive? <laughs> I'm just curious. So we're about 43 minutes into this uh, this podcast. I just wanted to say thank you for attending, and uh, I think I'm going to go ahead and wrap it up because this is a read-only. I mean, you can call in, but uh, by invitation, but this has been a reading of the trial of Julian Assange. Well, join us tomorrow. We'll be reading Chapter 14 to wrap the book. Thanks for listening. Before you go, hit the subscribe button. Remember that callers are welcome. Subscribers can access Unsanctioned Citizen Podcast Archives at Substack, Automatic, iHeartRadio podcasts and call in. Please stay in touch. We want to hear from you. Visit SheilaMDean.com.